All right, my friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast, where, as always, we'll discuss the professional literature and the evidence-based protocol as they relate to the effective treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms. I'm Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist, and this, well, this is OCD Straight Talk. Dr. Robert Hindman, a licensed uh, psychologist and author of both peer-reviewed articles and book chapters uh, on topics that span from the treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms, uh, depression and personality disorders to the use of mindfulness skills and cognitive therapy techniques in the treatment of various presentations of psychopathology and trainer in cognitive therapy at the esteemed Beck Institute. Dr. Hindman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, so... Uh, we had traded emails a little bit this morning about Dr. Beck. I'd, I'd love to hear uh, what he was like. Um, and I, of course, ask in, in light of his recent uh, passing. Uh, but I, I think that uh, individuals like myself would, would love to hear uh, what was he like? What was it like to spend an hour with him or so? I mean, the big thing is just he like he absolutely loved what he did. So, you know, he he worked up until the very end, I think. Um, so his daughter, uh, Dr. Judith Beck, she's the president of the Beck Institute. And she said, you know, two days before his death, he was working on uh, papers. So like he was just so passionate about cognitive behavior therapy and particularly in the last I think probably about 10, 15 years, got really passionate about something called recovery oriented cognitive therapy, where, you know, he had started off with depression and kind of moved into anxiety disorders and then was really focused on hard to treat disorders. So, you know, with like things like schizophrenia or psychotic disorders, you know, there really wasn't much research out there. So he kind of focused in on that and, you know, developed something called recovery oriented cognitive therapy. And that was really what he focused on, uh, yeah. his last years. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, growing up, uh, going to like Borders Cafe or I think it was or the bookstore, you know. Back when there and, were bookstores. Uh, what's up? What's up? <laughs> Back when there were bookstores. Yeah, right, right, right. And and I would always go to the psychology section, you know, I was getting interested in in psychology or or counseling psychology or whatever. And and there would invariably be a you know pretty significant section of cognitive therapy or cognitive behavior therapy. And um and I was always intrigued, you know, I didn't know really much at all at the time about about psychology or, or certainly not about uh, psychotherapeutic techniques or modalities or whatever. Uh, but I was always intrigued to find that there was, there was so much in terms of cognitive uh, therapy and cognitive behavior therapy on just a variety of topics, whether it was personality disorders, the treatment of personality disorders, or the treatment of depression, uh, the treatment of anxiety issues, uh, the, and the treatment of, of other kinds of, of, uh, of concerns that that you don't, at least I don't, and perhaps some of the listeners don't typically think of, uh, of a modality like cognitive therapy being effective for, uh, but it sounds like he researched uh, uh, quite widely in terms of, uh, of treatments for lots and lots of conditions. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the cognitive behavior therapy is based on just the cognitive model, the whole idea that, you know, it's not the situation itself that's leading to your emotional behavioral reactions. It's how you think about it. But, 
each disorder or problem kind of has its own individual cognitive model. So it's figuring out like what goes into this specific problem, disorder, and then kind of adjusting CBT to that. So how much of the, speaking of the cognitive model, I, I'd, I'd love to hear something of a definition from you. I mean, you're a trainer at the Beck Institute, so you're going to be, uh, you know, most certainly an authority on a definition of the cognitive model. But uh, another question I might have for you, in fact, let me hold that one uh, and just ask you, could you could you define what the cognitive model is? I have to a degree for, for listeners, but again, I'm really gonna to defer to you. You're gonna be the, the authority here. What do you think? What's a good definition for listeners of what the cognitive model is? I mean, to simplify it, I just bring it back to the idea that our thoughts play this important role in how we feel and how we act. So, you know, a lot of times people will think, well, if I'm in some kind of situation or some event happens, like that event's causing me to feel a certain way and that event's causing me to behave or respond in a certain way. But the cognitive model is, you know, there's an important step in there where it's our perceptions and kind of how we interpret what's going on. So like when I'm introducing the cognitive model to clients, I'll use a situation of, you know, let's say you text a good friend and it's been like five hours you haven't heard back. What would go through your mind? So like, you know, give me an example of what would go through your mind. Uh, uh I offended them. Uh-huh. And if you think I offended them, how would you feel? Nervous. Uh-huh. And like, what might you do? Uh, for me, I would seek reassurance uh, from my wife. I would uh, maybe uh, send a follow-up text of something like, uh, you know, um, I, I hope it didn't upset you. Um, I, I might read read my, my message again to, to look for that, uh, a form of what I would call, what, what the literature would call rumination or... or checking this kind of thing yeah that's what i would do uh and you know and like what could be another interpretation of why you haven't heard back in that five hours they're busy um uh, yeah and if you think their phone busy, died yeah so if you think they're busy or their phone died like how would you feel uh calm yeah and like what would you do shit nothing <laughs> exactly so the whole idea is same situation here like you texted someone it's been five hours you haven't heard back but depending if you think I offended them versus they're busy, that's going to really determine like how you feel and how you respond to it. So that's the cognitive model of, you know, our thoughts play this important role in like our reaction to experiences. Awesome. Awesome. So let me ask you this. You mentioned uh, uh, psychopathology and, and diagnoses uh, and the concept comes to me of like, okay, does the cognitive model uh, and does cognitive therapy, maybe in particular, get adjusted uh, to accommodate different diagnoses, or is the concept of, of uh, orienting patients or clients to the cognitive model really remain the same, despite whatever uh, diagnosis might be in play? I'll do the same like intro to the cognitive model using that texting example for everyone, but then when I start treatment with someone, I'm also gonna go over the cognitive model of their specific disorder. So like, you know, if I have someone coming in with panic disorder, I can say, you know, so the cognitive model of panic disorder is there's some kind of experience that leads to anxiety. You know, with anxiety, you have these symptoms and I'll list whatever their panic symptoms are. So let's say your heart starts racing, like you start feeling faint, um, you know, you get sweaty and shaky. And then from there, it kind of goes to something called your catastrophic misinterpretation of the symptoms themselves. So you start thinking, I'm going to lose control. 
What that does is it makes you more anxious because the idea of losing control is anxiety provoking. The more anxious you get, the more intense the symptoms get, the more intense the symptoms get. It kind of goes into that idea of losing control becomes more salient. And then it just kind of spirals and spirals and spirals into a panic attack. So like when I start off treatment, first I'll just go over general cognitive model. Then I'll go over their specific cognitive model of why they're coming in here. Yeah, yeah. So as you're working through the sequence uh, of, of, uh, of perceptions or, or thoughts and the corresponding uh, emotions, that, that is to say the anxiety that seems to be building more and more <clears throat> toward the onset of a panic attack, um, I'm wondering if the cognitive model uh, weighs uh, behavioral responses uh, as part of that model, and if so, to what extent or, or maybe how so? So when we present this to clients, like we're going to be nice and straightforward and we're going to simplify things. You got the situation, you got the thoughts, you got the emotion, you got the behavior. You can get more complex in that the situation is really anything that leads to automatic thoughts. So the situation can be an emotion. So like I can have an anxiety disorder client starts to feel anxious and then thinks this is terrible. I can't stand this. So then that leads to more anxiety. And then they try to, let's say, avoid it through maybe some kind of substance use. Like you can put the situation as a thought. So think of OCD. I have an intrusive thought. The response to this is what if this actually happens, you know, emotion, more anxiety, uh, behavior can be some kind of like checking behavior. So the situation can be like any experience. It can be a behavior. It can be a thought. It can be an emotion, panic disorder. It's a sensation. So I, I'm still going to talk about it in this like stepwise manner though, just to kind of break it down so the client can understand and it makes sense. In reality, it's not that simple though. Like we're not just these isolated thoughts to experiences. We're really just a stream of thoughts. And our stream of thoughts is going to be consistent with what we're experiencing in the moment and what we're focusing on. With our stream of thoughts, there's gonna be the constant emotional adjustment. With our thoughts and our emotions and our previous experiences in these kinds of situations, that's gonna influence how we respond behaviorally. So we're really just this kind of stream of all of these experiences that are constantly influencing each other. It's not so orderly. And you can think of the cognitive model as like, let's simplify it and take a really small segment. So like there's something called the complex cognitive model. So instead of just having one situation, thought, emotion, behavior, we're going to keep on going. And what's your thoughts about that behavior, about how the response is and how do you feel that way? And so you can just keep on going and going and going. We just want to make things a lot more understandable to the average person. Okay, so I think I'm following you and I want to make sure that, that listeners are too. So the idea is kind of like, I, I have the initial thought. Now, obviously this isn't the first thought of my life, but uh, in, in the, the, the initial situation that we might be talking about, I have a thought or, or a perception, whatever it is. Correspondingly, I have a, a feeling. Let's say the thought is, um, uh, uh, I... I uh, you know, I'm not going to feel better until I move my books, which I, I just did with, um, well, it doesn't matter. But anyway. Um, Those books look fantastic. Oh, wow. Thanks. Thank you. So, <laughs> but, but in any case, so I just I just moved them around and, and, and changed the order of them. And I feel, let's say, uh, anxious about that. And I'm thinking I'm not going to feel better until I, I do. Uh, okay. And then I, so what I do then is I, I maybe go and, and change the books back. And the new situation now is, 
a thought that says I feel uh, they're right and I feel less anxious. And so the new behavior then as I sit down, I'm able to take my mind off of uh, that and so on. Now that may not be the most uh, productive thing for me to, to do therapeutically in light of some OCD symptoms that I tend to have. But I, th I think that that's the kind of idea that, that you're meaning to, to explain. Is that right or did I not get it correct? No, exactly. Yeah, it's like, you know, we're, we, the cognitive model is like a small segment, but we're constantly experiencing things. We're constantly evaluating things. So it starts off with the books and like, it's not just right. I don't like to look at this. You feel a little uncomfortable. So then what you do is you fix it. Once you fix it, you probably then look at the books again and kind of think, okay, it looks right now. When it looks right, like I feel a little bit better. So then I'm going to sit down and move on to the next task. So then you look at your computer and it's like, okay, well, what do I have next? You know, so it just it goes and goes and goes. We just tend to take the cognitive models, usually when someone experiences like an increase in distress. So like, okay, something's happening. Then all of a sudden I have the spike in anxiety. Let's take a look at what's going on there. So what events were happening? What kind of thoughts were showing up that led to this spike of anxiety? And then how did you try to cope with it? Or what did you do in response to it? So we tend to focus on the cognitive models that are relevant to either feeling more distressed or like whatever the presenting problem is. Like, let's say it could be relationship issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to shift gears a bit and talk about depression, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, and so the research is pretty clear that, uh, that a good number, uh, somewhere between 60 and 70%, uh, the, the, the outcome data or the, the research tends to vary slightly in this area, but a, a good number of individuals meeting diagnostic criteria for OCD and typically individuals presenting with rather severe symptoms of, uh, of OCD will, will also present with what we call comorbid depression, uh, which is just sort of a secondary or a resultant typically um, depression. Sometimes it's more biological, but oftentimes it's secondary. Uh, of course, you're familiar with the language, uh, but just for listeners, um, meaning as a result of. Uh, but it's a very, very common uh, presentation for, for people. They'll come in with OCD, but they also feel, they feel like shit, you know, in other ways. They feel really, really depressed. And so uh, I, I'm wondering, what can uh, listeners work to do uh, other than hopefully they're they're being seen by uh, uh, by a qualified therapist and uh, they're in a treatment process and, and they're working with with someone who is is going to help them in, in this way. But what can they do? What can they be focused on? Uh, whether it be the cognitive model or some specific behavior changes like behavior activation and so on. What what, what to your mind can listeners focus on when they're feeling really really depressed? Yeah. So, you know, that's where you have the different cognitive models to different disorders. So, you know, when I'm working with someone who has a OCD and depression diagnosis, well, I guess, first off, like when I think of diagnosis, I just think of everything as being normal human experience on a continuum. So like we all have sadness to some extent, we all have anxiety to some extent. If you look at the research, 80 to 90% of people report intrusive thoughts. So like you have those experiences. You know, I always say that means 10 or 20% of people don't lying. understand the question or lying. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So with it though, like we all have these experiences, but where is it on a continuum? So like if it's further up on the continuum of intensity, of frequency, where it either causes you to stress or like impede your functioning in some way, it's technically a disorder, but there's no like strict cutoff point. But so like in going over OCD and depression, 
like when I'm working with a client, I'm just seeing how everything fits together. Typically what happens is you have the OCD and then there's a lot of avoidance, right? So I don't want to put myself in these situations where these intrusions show up because it's so stressful, or I don't want to go in public and do things socially because what if people see me doing compulsions, that's going to be so embarrassing. So like in describing emotions, I'll usually tell clients anxiety means either it's energy for a challenge or there's some kind of threat. Depression means I've either lost something or I'm missing something important. So what happens between, between OCD and depression? I have these intrusions, so I'm not going to put myself in places where they happen. Over time, that avoidance spreads and spreads and spreads. So you end up doing a lot less or just the compulsions grow and grow and grow and they take up so much more of your life. What are you missing then? You're not doing what's important to you. So that's where depression shows up. Depression is there's this gap between where you are and where you want to be. So it's like, I have these intrusions, I'm avoiding, I'm giving up things because of the OCD. Now I'm assessing my life and I don't like my life. Like I'm not doing what's important to me. I don't have all of these experiences that are meaningful so that when I'm focused on this gap between how things are and how I want them to be, I start to ruminate about them. And ruminating, I usually tell clients is the whys. Why is my life this way? I'm thinking about how distressed I feel, how terrible things are. So when I'm avoiding and then thinking about how my life is terrible, that's when you get depression. So like what you can do, I mean, I can kind of kill two birds with one stone here where I can take, you know, for depression, it's behavioral activation. Let's figure out what's important to you. Like I'm gonna look at your values. What do you value in life? What's important to you in life? What have you given up since the OCD started getting more intense? I'm gonna take those activities and then that's gonna be both behavioral activation, which is gonna help with depression because we're gonna close that gap between how your life is and how you want it to be. But that's also gonna serve as an exposure exercise for OCD because you're gonna put yourself in these situations where the intrusions are gonna show up. And I can talk a person through how to notice the anxiety without trying to control it at all and then not do the compulsions in response. So like I can get both depression and anxiety with the same kind of intervention of just getting active and involved in things that are important to you. Yeah, taking my life back from, from the OCD and so on. Exactly. And in turn, the, the depression. So let's talk about behavior activation. Uh, for, for some of the listeners, I would imagine, you know, it, it's like, well, what the hell are they talking about? What's behavior activation? Um, and, and maybe it sounds intriguing and maybe it sounds applicable to me, but I really don't know the language. And of course, they can Google it easily enough. But between the two of us, I imagine we could probably do, you know, maybe a, a simpler and, and I don't want to say a better job but maybe it'll be easier for them if we just sort of hammer out, okay, what's this behavior activation business? Uh, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so with, with depression, you know, you're gonna have low energy, your motivation's gonna be down. So we're just kind of biologically programmed to feel tired and pull back because, you know, your brain's just naturally like, hey, we're tired, we need a rest. The problem with depression though, is when you pull back, What's there's more, what is there more time for? There's more time for rumination. So if you're not active, you're gonna be more in your head thinking about all of these ways your life's not going the way you want it to or just how bad you feel in general. So behavioral activation is just saying, you have this tendency to pull back, to withdraw, to isolate. Let's take that tendency and let's move you forward. Let's activate you. Let's get you involved in things instead of just kind of sitting in bed all day or like watching you know, Netflix on uh, continuously. So yeah. just getting someone up and more active and more involved in life. 
So yeah, so the, the listeners will often hear me talk about the importance of, of, uh, of identifying, resisting, and preventing compulsions. And uh, the literature doesn't explicitly say this, but what I'll often say to them is, uh, if, you're, if you're not stopping compulsions, you're not doing exposure therapy. And I'll work them, walk them through the logic of, of what I mean by that. Uh, but the point being really having uh, our eye on the ball of identifying and stopping compulsions. And if we can really work to carefully identify ritualistic action or, or what I might call micro compulsions, little behaviors that seem very, very subtle, but still feed the OCD system, if we can really work carefully to identify them and stop them, we're in all likelihood, we're going to make some progress, maybe even a lot of progress therapeutically. Again, hopefully we're in therapy in the process, but it's sort of, and, and I, I suppose I should say, we're stopping compulsions despite the fact that we're anxious. We're stopping compulsions despite the fact that intrusive thoughts are occurring. Uh, it's sort of like, F all that. I'm going to focus on identifying and stopping compulsions, even though it sucks. It's really hard. But if I can do that, the, the data is on my side, right? I'm in all likelihood going to make some good progress here if I can identify and stop. And it sounds like behavior activation is kind of the same way that I'm going to work to identify uh, specifically the the, uh, the the patterns of my life, the, the areas of my life that depression has taken from me. And despite the fact that I don't feel good, or I feel depressed, I'm having a lot of negative thoughts, um, I'm going to behave actively and I'm going to engage these areas of my life. And hopefully over the course of time, I'm going to feel and think in accordance with my action. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, like with the whole compulsion thing, like I'll tell OCD clients, you know, like, let's say you're eating dinner, you have a dog, dog smells your dinner, like starts begging, you're like, Oh, come on, like, stop begging. This is so annoying. You know what, I'm just going to throw you some food that'll kind of calm you down, make you go away. But you know what happens in the future. So that's compulsions, you're just feeding the dog. So I'll have like a common reframe, stop feeding the dog at the table. And then nice. with the with the depression piece, you know, a lot of what happens with OCD and depression is a belief. I can't like enjoy my life or I'm not going to have any happiness because of the OCD. So if I have intrusive thoughts, I'm not going to have any pleasure. If I have intrusive thoughts, I'm not going to be able to enjoy anything. So then there's the avoidance. Okay. Well, what's the point of following through with this? If it's not going to, I'm not going to enjoy it or I'm not going to like it anyways. So I'll do an experiment with a client. What have you given up from the OCD? what's important to you. And what I want you to do is I want you to rate your degree of happiness beforehand, zero to 10. And then right when you're done with the activity, I want you to rate it again and we'll see what happens. So, you know, more often than not, what a person realizes is actually, hey, I actually feel better. Happiness increased this is to some extent when I'm doing this, even though I've had intrusive thoughts during the experience. So I don't want a client to live life based on intrusive thoughts. I want them to live based on what's important to them. Intrusive thoughts are going to show up along the way because you can't control thoughts, um, but you can control behavior. Also, I'll tell clients too, like with happiness, you know, we can't control emotion at will. If we could control emotion at will, me and you would be out of a job because it would be, hey, I'm anxious or depressed. You know what? I'm going to, I want to feel better. Boom, I feel better. What we can control is we can control behavior. We can control the meaning we give to experiences and we can control where we focus our attention. So like with a depressed OCD client, what tends to happen is you're overly internally focused trying to control intrusive thoughts and monitor them. What are you not focusing on? What's important in life? What's external? Like what's in the world around you? So 
what you can do behaviorally, again, get engaged in what's important to you. The meaning you give to intrusive thoughts are, you know, these are just normal experiences pretty much everyone has. They don't have that deeper meaning. And that's the problem with OCD is the beliefs about the thoughts. And then where am I going to focus my attention? I'm going to focus on the world around me instead of being so internally focused. When you do that, and if you're fully engaged, something that's important to you, there's the opportunity for happiness, but you can't guarantee it. Yep. So that is an absolutely positively essential piece. I think that a lot of OCD patients, um, I don't mean to, to exclude uh, uh, the, the concept of depression here, I mean to include it, uh, but a, a number of, of OCD patients, they're naturally going to gravitate back to, am I having intrusive thoughts? Uh, how can I get rid of the thoughts? I'll do anything I need to do to get rid of them. How can I manage the anxiety? And rather than focusing their attention on the one ball that we can hit to get on base, as it were. Um, the one place where we really should be paying attention, which is behavioral choice and change. Uh, and, and in the process, what we're going to find is a lot of the, the cognitions uh, or intrusive thoughts uh, over the course of time are changing somewhat on their own. I don't mean to say that, oh, it's naturally going to happen, you know, and it'll be an easy process. Everyone listening knows that's bullshit. It's not going to be easy, but it is something that's simple. We can choose to stop engaging these uh, maladaptive behaviors, whether they're depressive in nature or compulsive in nature. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Cool. Yeah, like cool. one of the things I'll do with OCD clients as well is I'll have them just try to hold the intrusion in their mind as long as possible. So I want you just to like keep on repeating this intrusion. So like, you know, like I'm contaminated or like, you know, I have germs on me. Keep on, like really try to hold it in mind, like keep on going, keep on going. What people realize is after a while, like anxiety actually falls, even though you have the intrusion in your mind and it's actually really hard to hold that in mind. So it's this learning experience of, I can have this and anxiety is not constantly going higher and higher and higher. And even when I try to hold this in mind, it actually goes away anyways. That is, uh, I hope the listeners will rewind that and listen to that again. That, that's absolutely brilliant. That's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, so sometimes I'll have uh, clients write down their obsessions and look at them or write them down, read them, record that reading and listen to those obsessions over and over and over again. Uh, and just as you're saying, the one thing that we're finding will fluctuate is the anxiety. Uh, the thought, the commentary thought about the thoughts is this is going to keep getting worse and worse and worse until something horrific happens. I can't let that happen. So let me avoid the thought somehow. But what a lot of patients, as you're noting, will find is no, actually over the course of time with exposure and, and holding on to that thought, uh, my anxiety actually goes down over the course of time, pro provided that I'm really working to identify and stop compulsions as well. Yeah, and I'll also try to help them like, you know, there's the whole stop signal. When can I stop doing the compulsion? Typically, it's because anxiety is going down. I'll try to kind of cut that connection by doing something called an emotion exposure. So like, let's get you thinking through intrusions to try to get anxiety really spiked. Then what I'm going to do is, okay, let's stop what we're doing. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to focus on how anxious you feel right now. Like where in your body are you experiencing it? Like describe it to me. And then I'll just talk them through, you know, I want you to notice it, let it be there. I'll use the metaphor of watch it like a movie. You know, when you watch a movie, you're just kind of like sitting back, seeing what unfolds on the screen. Take that same approach to this anxiety in your body. Just kind of sit back and see what happens as it fluctuates over time. Don't try to control it. Don't try to make it any different. Just try to sit with it and let's see what happens there.
So, you know, inevitably at some point it's going to fade to some extent because if you're not constantly telling yourself things about the anxiety or focusing on your intrusions, like you don't need that energy for that challenge anymore. So people realize, hey, like when I don't try to control anxiety, it typically resolves or it fluctuates to some extent. So you kind of break that cycle of anxiety compulsion. Very good, very good. Good deal. Um, well, I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation, Dr. Hindman. It's, it's been a, a privilege for me to, to sit down and chat with you about uh, cognitive therapy and, and, and cognitive behavior therapy, specifically talking about depression and, uh, and, and uh, depression that's comorbid with OCD uh, interventions uh, for anxiety-related problems and so on. Been a great privilege. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. What's up, guys? If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving the podcast a five-star review or supporting OCD Straight Talk to help us produce more content.